Welcome to episode two of the Cloud Native Podcast. Today we talk about microservices versus monoliths. All right, welcome everyone to the Cloud Native Podcast, episode two. Thanks for joining us. My name is Matt Farina. I'm an engineer at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And with me today is Matt Butcher, a developer over at Deiz. Welcome, Matt. Yeah, thanks. So the first part, uh, last week we talked about um, news or something kind of noteworthy-ish. And we're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to do something we're called the Cloud Native Developer's Toolbox. You know, we're interested in cloud native development and helping application engineers um, do it well, do a better job, learn and grow. And so we know a whole lot of tools and um, software libraries and applications that can help you. And so we want to share them and talk a little bit about them. And, and maybe they stick, maybe they don't, maybe they help some folks um, and not others. But it's a learning experience and it gives everybody something that they can go off and poke at if they don't already know it. And so... so Oh, so what's our tool today? Our tool today, we're going to talk about Hubot. Uh, Hubot is uh, chat up software that came out of uh, GitHub. And so you've got your chat up system already. And then Hubot is the bot software you can integrate with it. And chat ops, you know, we were talking about before the show, it's almost become a, a, yep, I'm doing it. It's not the cool new kid thing. It's not the fad anymore. It's not for the cutting edge folks. It's kind of becoming everywhere because we live in a world where we want to automate as much as we can. We want, you know, we don't want to get paged in the middle of the night because we've automated handling all the issues that'll come up. We want to know when things happen and we want simple interaction to do that. And uh, Hubot, you know, it's one of those frameworks that, that lets you do that, I think. And it helps you to integrate with your chat system, tie together your op system, your development workflows. And I think uh, GitHub even does it when somebody comes to check into the office. They even you do that through Hubot. And so there's a lot of neat things you can do with it. Uh, Matt, have you ever used Hubot? Uh, I have not. I've used some other tools and actually even tried writing my own chat bots. Uh, but I haven't used Hubot. Does it work with Slack? Uh, you know, I haven't used it with Slack, but I bet it does. It works with every other system that I've tried it, which has been HipChat and IRC and a whole bunch of those tools. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and most of the time, you know, the bots are fun. But uh, what we've found at Deus is that they can be real productivity boosters if you do them right. Uh, and also a good source of random cat pictures off the internet. That's what I was going to ask. How do you have productivity with cat pictures or funny sayings <laughs> constantly so showing up in chat? <laughs> that is productive. <laughs> I just have a really low bar for productivity. <laughs> I, I like how you define that. I like how you define that. Uh. All right. So for the main topic today, we actually wanted to talk about microservices versus monoliths. In last week's episode, uh, we started talking about what is cloud native. And Matt, you brought up the idea of, well, you know, with cloud native, you can kind of divorce the idea of microservices being tied into there. And so it just kind of made sense to expand on those thoughts and talk a little bit more about what the heck is going on here. You know, microservices versus monoliths. What should you do? Why should you do it? Do you have to rewrite your application? There's a whole lot that sits around and go in cloud native and, and these type topics and, and terms get bundled together. And so it's nice to kind of break that down and talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that probably the best way to get started is to just try and clear it up. Right. Last week we talked about, uh, microservices not necessarily being 
a required ingredient for cloud native. And I said it was because I think we kind of misunderstand what we're talking about when we're talking about them. So when I'm thinking of a monolithic service, what what sort of bubbles up in my mind is a monolith is just an application that is relatively self-contained. You know, it is serving uh, the client, some external end user kind of client, but it kind of encapsulates the full workflow that is necessary to answer that client's request. Uh, so, uh, you know, probably a good way of looking at a architecture that was designed to be more monolithic is something like maybe the original design for modules in the Apache server, where as you stepped through the different parts of Apache's workflow, the idea was you had code running inside of Apache as a module that was uh, putting together each of the workflow steps until you could assemble the whole thing, soup to nuts, all in one big application. And then, of course, when we look at like the Java world, we get, uh, I don't know, maybe we're talking about megaliths at that point, right? We have these uh, some of these, the old J2EE model, the first J2EE model was we build these really, really um, large scale applications that might require a four or five U server. But that particular image of the monolith is not necessarily the best image of the monolith. The smaller um, Apache-style uh, version might actually be a more accurate representation of my mind. Because re- in my mind, because really what it's about is the workflow, right? It's about one piece of software that handles the full workflow. And of course, we have to add a couple of quick caveats to that and say, okay, it doesn't imply that you compile the database in, right? Or that uh, um, that it can't have a caching server sitting in front of it or anything. But it's that kind of business logic-y workflow stuff, the, the, the stuff that makes the processing happen. When it's all bundled together in one big application, I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a monolith. Does that Does that seem like it sort of captures the basics of it, Matt? Yeah, it does. And I thought it was funny the way you described Java, you know, these giant megaliths, even larger. It kind of reminded me of maybe a microservice is a lizard and then, you know, a, a uh, monolith is like a dragon and then Godzilla is a megalith, right? It's this <laughs> giant thing. Uh, at least that's the visual that came to my mind. Maybe I like monster movies too much. <laughs> So that's a monolith. And so I, I'll jump in and just talk about what I think a microservice is. And a microservice is, um, at least in my mind, it is smaller conceptually because it is one, it's one logical piece to a larger puzzle. And so, you know, think about an application that, um, stores some content and then maybe goes and looks up some other information. So, so, Take, uh, you know, we all fly or many of us have flown around in planes, right? And so think about this system where you've got, I want to go learn about flights and airports. And so I'll have a, you know, one microservice that deals with getting information on airports, another microservice that deals with flights related to those airports. And it's this smaller single chunk focused on one concise thing, but of course doing that small and well so that they can be glued together to form larger things. So if we took that idea of like Apache being one way to visualize a monolith, we could kind of carry that over and say uh, in the microservice, the, the, the component layer of a microservice is, is each individual service, right? So when we split it up into uh, one thing that authenticates a user and another thing that, uh, that does a, a, a 
you know, list of lists out something or another thing that queries an external service in monolith architecture. We're talking about those as components within one piece of software in the microservice architecture. Do you think it's fair to kind of say uh, each of those is a separate microservice or might, might be envisioned as a se- separate microservice? Yes. Yes. I think that's a good way to put it. All right. I think we've beaten to death. These definitions <laughs> a little bit. We really, we've really gone in on it. Um, but but one, I, uh, yeah, let me ask, though, uh, it's often asserted that a microservice is stateless. Do you think that the stateless part is really part of the definition of a microservice, or is that just someone expressing a preference as to where you ought to store your data? So so I think this is a product of our environment and history. When you look at where microservices, or, or at least this idea came from, you kind of got this idea of 12-factor apps and Heroku and Cloud Foundry. And you can really see it coming up there and the descriptions of what they had with 12-factor apps being related to microservices. But if you actually go over there and read, you're not going to find the word microservice in the 12-factor app guide. It's not there. Um, And they may talk about stateless, but that was a product of what they were building at Heroku at the time, not so much about the technology. And so I think microservices can be stateful. Um, and in, in cloud native, because it's about the, the size of the service conceptually, not how it stores data or what it does with its data. So you can have a small conceptual service that maybe stores data to disk, which by the way, is actually what a database does. It stores data to disk. It's just the format and the things that it does. And so I think you can have state and microservices together. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I think that, uh, that when we add on stateless into the definition, it's it's uh, a misnomer, right? It's it's attaching an attribute to microservice that isn't really part of the definition. I think you're right. Microservice is really about the size of the API surface, I would say, um, right? And not so much uh, the uh, the internals of where it stores something or whether it can recover itself from a crash by recovering data or something like that. All right. So when it comes to monoliths, what are advantages? What's interesting to them? Why should somebody, why do people even consider writing a monolith? Well, I, I do feel like when you talk about a monolith, uh, it's really sort of a traditional application. Right? It's the kind of thing that, it's the kind of architecture that we've been using for quite a while, particularly in, in, uh, in servers, right? Uh, and, and I think that the reason why that architecture sort of evolved into what it is is because it does have a couple of big advantages. And the first one has got to be that when you're working on a development team uh, and and you, you're all charged with kind of building um, a cohesive application that just works, there is a big advantage to having all the code in just one place. Right. The whole team kind of knows this is our focal point. And if we can get it working under this set of conditions, then it's complete. Um, And and when, you know, maybe when we get into microservices, we can compare that particular assertion to the way a microservice architecture would work. But uh, another idea is that uh, I think monoliths tend to be relatively 
straightforward um, to deploy and you can build a relatively straightforward deployment strategy, right? We know what the scope of this application is and what it needs. So when we need to build a deployment environment for it and then push it out there, we just have, um, you know, overly simplified. We just have one big moving piece. Now, of course, there might be databases or caching servers or message queues, but for the core software we're talking about, we have just one thing uh, that 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 we need to put out there, right? Does that make sense? What do you think about that? It does. And it also led me to think about a couple of other things. For example, if you come from a background of vertical scaling, how does that relate to monoliths and scaling your applications? You know, if we're doing cloud native, it's it's really common to do horizontal scaling and to talk about it. But historically, vertical scaling has been a pretty big thing. Yeah, I agree. And we should probably introduce those terms. So the idea with horizontal scaling is that as you approach your threshold of how much activity your application can handle, uh, you spin up more copies of your application. So, uh, so say I'm running out of memory on one instance, I create another instance and give it more memory. And then I, you know, share over the pool of really network trafficking, uh, CPU processing, those kinds of things. Now with vertical scaling, the idea is that you just throw more resources at the existing process. You increase the amount of memory it's allocated. You increase the number of processors it has access to, um, or more network bandwidth. And that I think, um, I, I think that it's fair to say that vertical scaling was really sort of uh, the norm for uh, for maybe the last 15 or 20 years up until it actually became possible to very easily scary scale scary scale horizontally. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that traditionally when you design a monolith in my in sort of the back of your mind, you have that vertical scaling in mind as sort of your main method of dealing with increased load. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking too. And then there's the other thing that comes back to my to our dirty little history. <laughs> so, so in the past, we worked with content management systems, in particular the Drupal content management system. And it struck me when you want to have an extensible system, and this applies to things like the Apache web server. Think about, uh, you know, extending a microservice versus extending a monolith like a content management system or the Apache web server, the way that you write module add-ins and how that's able to extend the larger system. Now, try to do that in a microservice architecture. I think that uh, maybe part of you know the reason for monoliths is the way we've made them easy to extend and the patterns for doing that in a... I would say for your, your extension developers in a really easy to use way, it's got a good developer experience. It's easy to engage in, which means, you know, that adds to popularity of those platforms. Yeah. And I think that it cannot be understated that one of the key pieces of that, uh, that makes a monolithic architecture attractive uh, is that when you're dealing with, uh, with, attaching to and using particular resources like a database or like a file in a file system. Uh, when you have a monolithic application, you can control access to that thing internally, right? You can say this file is locked. I'm claiming this file right now. When you use a microservice service, um, architecture or any one that really focuses on horizontal scaling, then uh, then race conditions and locking uh, technologies and techniques and things like that um, become an external aspect 
of your problem, right? You have to solve it somewhere in the environment outside of the application instead of inside the environment. So traditional techniques like, you know, semaphores and locks and stuff like that, uh, that we code into stuff, um, those aren't really available so readily in a microservice architecture. Yeah, yeah. So, so we talked about the benefits of monoliths. Uh, let's talk about the pitfalls of monoliths. Everything's got its pitfalls, and it's worth being honest about them. So what do you think the pitfalls are of monoliths? Oh, now that I've spent all this effort, you know, advancing the cause of the monolith, I don't want to talk about the pitfalls. <laughs> but, I mean, okay, in all seriousness, we got to start with the easy one, right? That is, uh, you know, we were joking about Java megaliths, right? That is a a scary part about monoliths. How do you control them and keep them from growing into these big behemoth beasts that become spaghetti code that's a nightmare to maintain and uh, and that you can't really gut or gracefully work with anymore? That's the one that comes first to my mind. How about you? Yeah, that, that kind of comes to my mind as well. I mean, ma- imagine having an application, especially in the enterprise, because in enterprise applications, you might have, you know, a couple hundred developers working on something that is you know, millions of lines of code and now get them to write something consistent of good quality that works well together. Um, doesn't have lots of duplication or, you know, whatever to have one good monolith. And that turns out to be a hard problem, a really hard problem because, you know, one or two people can't look over an application that big at the pace everyone's moving. And so the large side of the, you know, size of the code base, being able to understand and to, to optimize it and and to do all of those things. I mean, you talk about scaling. Is it optimized even to scale? You don't even know because you can't hold the whole thing in your head. Yeah, that that's actually an excellent point. You know, um, both of us have played the roles of software architects on both simple and complex um, applications, right? And it is definitely worth uh, acknowledging that. When you can't keep the conceptual framework of your application in mind anymore, uh, it gets really easy to start coding sloppily and designing sloppily. And I really, my gut instinct is that when you start to see these applications that just grow and grow and grow um, and start to look like Howl's Moving Castle instead of a nice, elegant, you know, structure – uh, that's because the architect or architects have sort of lost the ability to contain the whole thing mentally. Do you think that's an, do you think microservices solves that problem though? Or do you think we just end up with, um, with the same problem writ large across multiple services? That's a good question. We may end up having that same problem at large across multiple services. If anything, what uh, microservice architecture would let you do is have really separate functional parts that are easier to put in diagrams that don't end up merging in a spaghetti manner with the one next to them where they've got these weird interdependencies. If anything, it forces you to have a good modular architecture with things, you know, I've got my high level, then I can drill down to the next level, and then I can take one of those and easily drill down. Because your API forces you to talk between that rather than reading, you know, reaching horizontally across them. If anything, yeah. maybe it helps you deal with your architecture. So I think I could summarize that argument in two words. Clean interfaces. Microservices force you to write clean interfaces, whereas maybe that's really the underlying issue behind this kind of complexity is that 
that we see in monoliths as they become megaliths, right? Is that the clean interfaces sort of vanish and you just end up with code that's a twisty, tied up knot of interdependencies. Uh, do, you, do you have any other big pitfalls you can think of with monoliths? None right now, but I'm sure I can come back to them later. <laughs> so we should dive into microservices. All right. So uh, let's see. When I think microservice, um, there are actually a couple couple companies that sort of uh, float to the top of my mind because I think Netflix and, and Amazon both did a, a great service to the concept of microservices by – being early advocates and then also sort of explaining how they did things. And uh, in particular, uh, both of them sort of focused on this idea that in microservice architectures, you could have fairly small teams. I mean, earlier you were talking about teams of, you know, 50, 100, 200. But if your code is small enough that you can fit it into a nice microservice architecture, shouldn't you be able to run the team with maybe four or five people? That, to me, is one of the first advantages that would come out of microservice architectures. You can have a small number of people collaborating very closely to achieve one specific end. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And, you know, the next one coming to that end actually gets me into to testing, right? If I'm testing a monolith, it's going to take a while to build it, to run all of the tests. But if you've got that small bit that's owned by a single team... That just by itself, testing that can be really fast because you're not waiting on everybody else, everyone else's tests to run, everyone else's code to build. You can test your piece really well and fast. Yeah, that's a good point. And and in relative isolation, it makes it easier to mock sort of a client that would access the API, exercise it to its fullest extent, and then validate that it was doing what it wanted, right? Yeah. Uh, um. What what else you got there? <laughs> so, so I would say the next thing is, you know, and we talked a little bit about this a minute ago, but it allows you to have that component architecture at a higher level and force those interfaces and, and whatnot. I really, we talked about it, so I won't beat it to death, but it's this, like, you know, that idea of a cleaner architecture that you can, you can draw, you can more easily communicate, define, and has interfaces at that component architecture level. It it for, enforces you to be a little bit um, more organized, and so I like that. Um, it yeah, also I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say I think one of the things that comes out of that kind of component architecture at a high level uh, is that when it comes to rolling out new versions of stuff, you should be able to roll out individual components instead of rolling out the whole thing. So while it might be more straightforward to roll out one monolith as one big blob of code. Uh, it takes the whole application offline when you're upgrading, right? Ideally, in a microservice architecture, shouldn't you sort of be able to, you know, roll one component, upgrade one component without taking down the whole system? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it gets into your rolling upgrade, your blue-green strategies and how you do that. But if you're just upgrading a smaller piece of it, then in theory, that should allow you to do things like zero downtime updates, which I think have now become the expectation for users. You should never see downtime unless there's an outage. And that's one of those things that I'll admit. Some of the stuff like the financial institutions I use drives me crazy. When I go there to pay my bills online and it's offline for maintenance, it's like, where is my zero downtime update? I should be able <laughs> right. to get this. 
Yeah, and that I assume would also, I mean, you you brought up blue-green deployments, and the reason that those sorts of strategies work is because with a microservice, uh, and again, I'm I'm sort of lumping in this idea of uh, horizontal scaling with microservice, and maybe that's not fair, but I, I really do tend to couple those together. And then, uh, you know, if you can scale horizontally, then uh, you should be able to use strategies like blue-green where you can start to scale down, you know, uh, gradually add the new versions in and scale up the new version and down the old version. And that's one way to achieve that kind of zero downtime. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm going to take this back to to some of the stuff that we did back in the day. So running Drupal, right? Running Drupal. Drupal is a kind of a monolithic application. And the way it worked, right? You wanted to do upgrades. Oh, your database schema changed? You wanted to have a zero downtime update? Well, how do you do it so that way you can upgrade and change your database schema on the fly when you do upgrades? That was that's that's always been a pain point of working with these kinds of things, and that's not the only application. I mean, there's a lot of systems out there that do it this way, and you end up with offline time, or you know, you're faking it somehow. I mean, that's one of the things we did was we were actually able to have the zero downtime because oh, we made a copy of the database and we froze it, and so we showed you the old one, but you couldn't make changes to it while we upgraded the new one in the background, and then we switched it with the blue green, and we were able to kind of pull that off, but it took a lot of automation and it was a little bit painful. And so that zero downtime update can become a lot of extra work if you don't do it well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, let's let's change focus, though, from the operational part of a microservice. And let me ask you this. So I contend that one of the nice things about working on a monolithic system is that, you know, the code is all sort of right there in front of you. And you've got, uh, you know, everybody's using the same version of a library. Everybody's looking at the same code base and you're all sort of on the same page. What do you think the, the, the advantages are to the actual developers who are working on microservices? What do they gain by the microservice architecture? Well, I think one of them is is that you can write different parts in different languages. And that can be your optimal language. That can be your group's language of choice. Maybe one department is just dead set on Python. And another group is dead set on Java. And another group is dead set on JavaScript. And you've got these different parts. Well, you can actually write different ones in different languages that are that work well. And they can play well together. And sometimes you're basing it on your own personal preference. Other times you're basing it on there's a more optimal language to write something in because the language was targeted for that. It's funny because uh, the manager part of me is like, ooh, this sounds like a nightmare. While the polyglot, polyglot programmer part of me is like, yes, I mean, that's totally what we like. Uh, you want to if it's easier to do this part in Node.js and that part in Java, knock yourself out. But I also think that that this thing can actually fuel open source and sharing, right? How many applications out there use etcd? And etcd can run as a service in your environment to deal with your configuration. But you don't have to write all of your stuff in the language of this. And so where we used to share, you know, libraries, and then you'd rewrite that same library for every language out there, you know, how many different languages have a semantic version library or, or version control or whatever? You've got libraries in all these different languages, so you can plug it into that language. Well, with a microservice, it's a clean API, usually an HTTP-based API, and that means anything that speaks it can do it. So you can write it once and work well, and then it can be shared and used in all these different environments. And so from an open source standpoint, from a sharing standpoint, I think that's an enabler. Yeah, I understand your point. It does raise an interesting 
counterpoint though, which would be, and we could probably, we could probably talk about this for an entire episode. When it comes to the CI/CD story for microservices versus monoliths, you know, the monolith might have the the edge here because the build store is fairly straightforward, right? You've got one platform you want to support. Um, you know, I know it's a big question to ask, but you know, what is the CI CD story look like? The continuous deployment story look like for microservices? Does it really force you to be more sophisticated in that environment or does it, does it actually simplify the whole thing? Yes. And let, let me explain because we're <laughs> going to talk about a benefit and this is a great transition to get into the pitfalls of microservices. So you can test that individual piece. And that smaller piece, it can be fast tests. Uh, you can do all kinds of stuff with it because you don't have to wait for the rest to build. We talked about that. But then that transitioned into, well, my broader application, that's a combination of microservices. How do I test that together? And that's where you get into one of the pitfalls of microservices, especially compared to monoliths. With a monolith, you just test it. With a microservice, you've got to stand up the different services, make sure they're online, and then test your change thing against them in an integration environment. And that's where you get into things that are more complex, especially if, you know, before you were talking about, I can deploy and upgrade individual parts of my microservice. So you've captured, you know, the configure on that individual microservice. But when you want to test all of them together, you need some kind of system that can store, here's all of the different systems and how they connect to each other, spin them all up and test them. But you're probably not going to use that same configuration in both environments because if you want to manage an individual versus all of them together in a CI environment, you now got into some you know changes from a management standpoint. And so now I've just interjected a whole bunch of extra complexity in to do this continuous testing. And that actually brings us to what I think is the biggest complaint that I have with microservices. Uh, the, the, the number one problem that causes sleepless nights and, you know, tons of coding is the problem of compatibility. Because when you have all these microservices, the sort of uh, implicit uh contract it's not implicit well it's an explicit contract right you have a contract between each and every possible pairing of microservices that you need to support and that contract comes in the form of the api and all of a sudden the way that you version stuff becomes the most important aspect of your system because you've got to make sure that when you're rolling stuff out, right, when you're doing your blue-green deployments, you do it in the right order so that the versions all maintain compatibly, compatible. And this might not be a tough thing if you've got, say, three microservices. But what happens when you're running, you know, 10 or 15 or 30 or 40? And you have to make sure that no two of those that communicate with each other are running in, in, in with incompatible understandings of what APIs are there. And that, to me, I feel is is the most challenging part of microservices. When when you're dealing with the monolith, if it compiles and passes its unit tests, you have a fairly good idea that all the contracts are working the way they're supposed to inside. But with a microservice architecture, you push all of that to a different level that I feel is a harder level to verify. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And in fact, that this whole how do you talk to them together brings up another little interesting component that I would call a pitfall. And that is you're now talking about API compatibility. But most of those APIs are con you know, communicating over networks, HTTP-based networks. 
And as we've learned the hard way, if you don't handle those network communications well, they can just dramatically increase your overall app time, right? The time to negotiate a connection, to negotiate an SSL certificate if you're doing that, to, to do TCP slow start. And if you do these things and you keep having to redo them between applications, that adds a huge amount of latency, significantly more than, say, one module in a monolith talking to another that's just internal within an application. I mean, the difference in time is is massive. And if you don't do that well, all of a sudden you've slowed down your whole overall application and your customers are going, well, why is this slower than what I need? You know, why does it take so long to respond? And it's lost in the network communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're talking 100 milliseconds in some cases to set up the SSL handshake and, and negotiate the protocol there, and then the TCP slow start uh, or other you know various latency control things, you can end up doubling, tripling, or even or increasing by an order of magnitude the amount of time that you, it would actually take to do to exchange the data. Um, I I hate to get too far away from the central topic, but in some ways, when I think about that problem, I think, well, that's a problem with HTTP one. And to some extent, HTTP2 will really help us get over a lot of that. Uh, maybe. So so take an application like a Python application or a PHP application that the way they make connections, the way you know the, they're sit behind a web server and then that web server kills the process when it's done. And so you, you end up having to do some of this renegotiation. I'm hopeful that a lot of HTTP2 implementations will take this away even with those languages. Um, and it is a great way to speed it up, but we're kind of on the cusp of that. And so if you're doing it now and, and maybe you're not using HTTP2, uh, there can be some real problems here and it's worth digging into. Now, earlier you listed testing as one of the big advantages to microservices, but one of the things that we basically have just reinforced a couple times in the last two or three minutes is that uh, it might be easy to test the microservice in isolation, but what about testing the interchanges between different microservices, both performance testing to identify this latency stuff and API compatibility testing? Do you feel like that's the sort of thing that is that there are uh, known and tested strategies, known and implemented strategies for that kind of thing? Or does, does that really also fall into sort of one of those pitfalls of microservices? I would say it's a pain and, and folks <laughs> try to figure it out. And it's still a pain. And I have not found a solution I like. So if somebody has one, email me. I'd love to talk about it. And it'll it end and up in share. our it'll end up in our cloud native toolbox next yeah, week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That would be one of those things I would want to share because quite frankly, I want good answers to that. I think it's a problem and we need better tools for that. I do think, uh, again, returning to that kind of developer view, one of the things that scares me a little, bo- a little bit about microservices is uh, even if we're writing our microservices in the same languages. So say we're working in the, you know, let's, let's call a typical dev team size for a medium enterprise, maybe 40, right? And say we've got around 40 people working on our central application. And we've divided it up into uh, microservices and we have, say, teams of around four or five and maybe there's a little bit of cross-pollination and team members work on more than one. Uh, Once... Once we start to drift, right, once we start to silo each other off into separate teams, aren't we sort of increasing the danger that 
first of all, our conventions will drift and, um, and, and we'll be less likely to look at each other's code and understand it, or that maybe our, um, our techniques or design patterns or things like that will drift and it'll end up being reflected in the APIs themselves. And we'll have big long arguments about whose API design philosophy is better than anyone else's. Oh, we probably will. But we're also going to get into arguments in a monolith that say, well, you're doing your module in a different pattern from mine. And we all live in one code base. And so we need to debate which one we should do here. I think as developers, we love our religious debates on these things, you know, Vim versus Emacs, and, and you could go on and on and on. And so I think whether it's in a microservice or a monolith, once you've got 40 people together working on the same application, you probably have 80 different opinions on how you should do one thing, and that's going to lead to debates. So you're saying you can't solve bike shedding with good architecture? <laughs> you can't solve bike shedding. Period. <laughs> Period. We, we just enjoy doing it. Maybe it's our way of, of breaking away from the monotony and arguing things. But uh, I, I don't think you can avoid it. And I do feel like one of the things that microservice architectures just sort of teach you, and maybe it's a pitfall, but maybe it's just the way you have to do them, is that ahead of time, you do have to think a little bit more about how the big picture is going to look and how then you're going to design your API so that they end up being fairly consistent from component to component. Yeah, yeah, you definitely need that high-level design to come. And you can iterate on it, but you need to start with one and have something in mind. And, you know, if you're going to move fast and break things, that can be hard to do to stop and think first, um, especially if you, you need to do that. So maybe there's not always a time for it. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. So now this leads me to some fun questions. And I'm going to start <laughs> with the first one for you. So is it fair to call a monolith legacy? Oh, uh, you know I hate that. Uh I don't think it's fair to call the monolith system to conflate that with like a legacy platform. Uh, I, I really feel like the monolith is still a viable model. Uh, I, I, I think that many teams will find that the particular problem space that they're working in can be addressed better by taking a unified code base and, and focusing on building that. So I, when I hear the word legacy, I think that's sort of a pejorative term. And I don't think it's really fair to say monolith is always the past and the, the, the present and future is a microservice architecture. Okay, that's a good answer. I don't know that I entirely agree or disagree. We'll wait to be seen. I'll wait till I get called to write the next monolith that I get to work on and then decide <laughs> whether I like it or not. Um, but yeah, I, I think I do maybe tend to agree with you that, uh, you know, legacy, it, it really does carry this negative term. It's old, it's outdated. You wouldn't want to use that pattern again. And I think there are a lot of places where the pattern still makes sense. Um, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. And I, yeah, I, I do have to reinforce again that I don't like the idea that, that the monolith is somehow not cloud native. Uh, just because the workflow is handled internally more than externally, I don't think that that somehow means it can't be reasonably containerized. It can't be reasonably managed inside of a cluster like Kubernetes or um, or Mesos or something like that. Uh, I really feel like the monolith is more of a design pattern designed for the, the developers need to be concerned with. And sometimes uh, monoliths can really run more efficiently in a cloud native way than, say, a the whatever the megalith equivalent, you know, so we've got monoliths and we've got megaliths, whatever the 
the uh, pebble-sized microservice over, totally over-the-top architecture is, that to me seems like the kind of thing that ends up being really hard to manage well uh, in a cloud-native way. When you have dozens upon dozens of microservices, you're, you're multiplying problems. But I think the monolithic architecture really still, uh, I'm going to keep arguing this, really still can be handled in a cloud-native way. And I'll go so far as to say I've actually taken a monolith application, stuck it inside containers, and operated it with many of the benefits you expect from cloud native. The zero downtime updates, the you know all these fun things. I, I can actually say that I've done it uh, effectively. Or, well, I guess the customers would say it's effective because they didn't have downtime and it just worked. And that's what matters, right? Yeah. And, and maybe the one thing, the one place where I'd be inclined to disagree with myself would be when it comes to horizontal scaling. I think horizontal scaling is a very cloud-native idea. And maybe because of that, uh, we could say, you know, a monolithic can be cloud-native, but to be really to really be able to take advantage of all that cloud-native offers, it would also have to be a monolith that could, that could scale horizontally and not just vertically. And, and when I think about that, you know, that's a problem a lot of us want to have. And so <laughs> if you've got the problem of horizontal scaling... Just think about the blessing that that is, that people actually want to use what you built, and now you're struggling to scale it. What a rough deal, because a lot of us don't end up having that at the end of the day, and a lot of applications don't ever need that. Yep, that's true. So while we're on the topic of legacy, hey, there used to be this thing we called service-oriented architecture, or SOA. Yeah. Um, you know, it sounded an awful lot like this thing that we're calling microservices today. Um, are we talking about the same thing? Uh, is this a wolf in sheep's clothing? You know, kind of what's the relation between these two? You know, I, I've read uh, folks say that, you know, service oriented architectures, um, it was an idea, but it didn't have enough opinion to it to execute on. And that's what microservices are, is they really are service oriented architecture, but with a little bit more opinion that allows folks to more consistently execute on because at the end of the day, it is a bunch of services that, you know, have to work together and the architecture is based around that. But here, I think with microservices, you just end up seeing more opinions that help you stop thinking, well, how do I do my service oriented architecture? Instead, it's, it's microservice oriented, you know, it's microservice architecture. This is how you just do it. What do you, how do you communicate with between them? Oh, you're going to use HTTP based stuff, right? Uh, whether it's gRPC or or REST APIs or whatever, it's all HTTP based under the hood. Okay, we do that. You know, one thing you start breaking it down, and it's just some more opinions that help you get out of your own way to do it well. I think. What do you think about that? Um, I I think I could buy that argument. I I uh, I always felt like service oriented architecture was sort of a squishy way of saying. Uh, well, we ought to be more flexible and do more stuff over the network. But uh, like you said, it never felt like it had much teeth to it. And as I listen to you talk about it, I think, well, that's true. Uh, the way we talk about microservices really does start to answer some of those questions specifically in specific and opinionated ways. I, I wasn't going to buy your argument until you said, you know, we talk JSON over HTTP or we use gRPC. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's true. Uh, we have gotten away from the vague notion that two things should just be able to talk to each other and really sort of narrowed it down to two things should be able to talk to each other over well-defined HTTP, uh, JSON, or REST-like architectures, I mean uh, interfaces that are defined this way. 
So yeah, I think I I, I kind of I was gonna disagree. Uh, I was I was baiting you, but uh, but you won me over on that one. <laughs> All right. So so Matt, let me ask you this: a big question here, because you've been you've been talking about monoliths and microservices and 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 kind of pushing you know you don't need microservices and and I think you've won over that there is a place for monoliths and microservices. Um, so the question is, which should you use? Why and when? Ooh, oh boy, big question there. Um, I think I would say, being the apparently the staunch defender of monolith systems that I appear to be, uh, you know, the monolith system is the kind you want to use uh, when um, you are building something where the components are tightly coupled, right? Where you want to keep those interfaces as tight as possible. Uh, monolithic architectures might also be good in cases where uh, internal processing speed is paramount, right? We talked about network overhead as being one of those difficult uh, things to deal with. And maybe I would say, and I'm, I'm really torn on this one um, because I think it's immature it's immature technologies that are hindering us right now. But I maybe I would say that if you really want to do a thorough job of testing all possible permutations of your application, there's at least stuff that will help you do that with monolithic systems today. And if you're doing that with microservices, you're going to end up having to invent a lot of technology to do that. So those are at least the cases where I'd say uh, you want to use a, a, a monolithic style. What about you? So, so I'll, I'll toss that back to you and say, what are the clear cases in your mind where you'd use a microservice architecture? Well, actually, I have a reason for monolith first. Oh, and it okay. ties into the, the opposite, which is where I would use a microservice. If I have a small development team, just a handful of people, particularly building something new, having you know three, four, five people having to build, and if they're going to run it as a service, stand it up and operate a bunch of different services can be a lot of work for a small team that's trying to execute quickly. Whereas if you only have to stand up and operate and iterate on one, I think you end up taking a lot of your time away from operating it and, and dealing with all those pitfalls and that extra work that you can invest back into your business logic and building out your core product and all of those things. And, and then once you start running into things like the problem of scale or you bring in more people, then you can start to deal with breaking it up and what do you do. But for, I think, that small team, monoliths work well. What do you think about I agree. That? I, I think that is actually an excellent point. I can actually think of uh, at least four development teams I've worked on that have tried microservice architectures and really struggled with what I would call the code spread, right? Where there were just too many pieces out there that they had to keep updating. And that can be that can be tough when you and there are only three or five of you working on this kind of thing. Good point. And for me, the microservices, the converse side of that is gets into the size of your development team. If you're working with a development team of, of 30, 40, 50, 100, 200, I, you know, I know places that have, you know, 500, you know, people working on the same monolith. And if that were microservices, it can really change your dynamic of, of how you approach evaluating architecture or optimizing components. And so when I look at it, I think as the team scales, as the structure scales, as maybe the application needs to scale, it becomes appropriate to start breaking it up for your own cognitive, you know, mental model for different teams to be able to excel at their own ways. And so I look at it as a, as a growth of the application in both its usage size and development team size. And so I think microservices excel there as well. 
So I think where we're where I think we're ending up agreeing on something in sort of a surprising way is that I think we both kind of agree that the megalith thing is sort of a code smell, right? A design smell. When you've got a megalith, you got problems. I wish I had a good measurement for that. Uh, and and conversely with microservices, ooh ooh ooh, I'll propose a rule here, totally off the top of my head. If you have more microservices than total team members, there's a there's your architectural smell there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. More more microservices than than developers. I like that. That's a good one. Not product managers because you may have several of those for every developer. But but you know, I, I, yeah, I like that. That's a good that's a good rule of thumb. So if we were to sort of try and wrap all of this up, then I would have to ask, have we just made a mountain out of a molehill? Are are we really talking about two things that are as distinct as we say they are? Or are we all just, you know, sort of uh, recategorizing applications in a way that sort of makes sense at an abstract level, but in reality uh, isn't isn't really so firm? So, so here's the way I would do it. I, I think there is a lot of hype around microservices, which makes a lot of folks think maybe I should, re- you know, stop building on my application and start rewriting it in microservices. And maybe that doesn't make sense. You're a small team and you think maybe I should. It's the hot new thing, but maybe you shouldn't. Maybe just continuing on your monolith is is the right way to go. And and so I think it gets into this because of the hype, there is this big push to go microservices, whether it's the right thing to do or not, without thinking through the positives and negatives and how it affects my application. Conversely, there are folks who, who hold on to their monoliths, I think, too long and don't get the benefits of horizontal scaling or breaking it up for teams because, darn it, we, we've always done it that way or we're used to that or we don't really understand what we'll get as benefits of microservices, but we already know what we get today with monoliths. And, and sometimes there is this nice idea of, of taking a little bit of time to break it up. You slow down a little bit so that way you as a collective team of people can run much faster in the future. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's that's a good, you know, I always gravitate toward the pragmatic arguments, which is really, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you're writing software that your team can manage. And that means, you know, it's workable today. And as you develop on into the future, uh, you don't incur the penalty of massive uh, refactoring cycles. Right. And I really feel like that's sort of the underlying theory behind what you just said. And, uh, and, and I like that. I, the, the pragmatic arguments, you know, really resonate with me. You protect your team, you build software that's going to be a pleasure to maintain over the long run. And sometimes that does mean taking a monolith and turning it into microservices because it's the right thing for the software and the right thing for the team. But the team only does itself harm when they dig in and say, we're only going to do monoliths or we're only going to do microservices and that sort of thing, Right. Yeah, and you know what this is coming back to, right? Is it's not about cloud native. It's about the right architectural style for the the consistency and consumption. Who's your team and the size of your team and enabling them? Maybe the architectural style matters a lot more to enabling that and your ability to get things done with the people you have more than one style being, you know, just better than another based on its own merit. Yeah. I think that's a great way to wrap up an episode where we essentially started with a kind of contentious point, you know, is, is microservice the right way or is, uh, is monolith the right way? All right. So, so I think we came to our conclusion on this. If you agree or disagree, come let us know. We might be right. We might be wrong. Um, but we'd love to hear your thoughts too. So you can get us on Twitter at, uh, what is it? Cloud native cast 
or send us an email or just reach out to us. So uh, I think that's all we got for today. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. Mm-hmm.